0: Perfect. Perfect. Welcome. So I think we have a really exciting session, actually. The CME Outfitters did really a great job. To me, this is one of the most uh, innovative CME activities I've actually seen. So with that, again, just welcome to everybody. Again, this is Deciphering the Clinical Clues, Updates to Protocols and Procedures for Anti-CD47 Agents in Clinical Laboratories. Obviously, there's been a lot of excitement across hematologic malignancies in particular, although some challenges that, that I think we'll learn about at the same time. So again, this is a Gilead Sciences supported CME activity. Again, CME Outfitters is a joint accreditation provider and develops and certifies continuing education for the team and by the team, including our program today. So again, welcome to engage with us via X or formerly Twitter. There will be members from at CME Outfitters kind of monitoring as well. Welcome to post. I need to get more involved, I think, with this platform. So again, myself, I'm uh, David Salman from Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. I'm the myeloid section head and associate member in the malignant hematology department, predominantly running um, investigator trials in the setting of MDS and AML. And I'd like uh, each of my co-faculty members to introduce themselves. Uh, first, uh, Christine.
1: Thank you, Dr. Salman. I'm Christine lamas francis and Until last year, I was the technical director of the immunohematology lab at the New York Blood Center in New York. I retired from that position, but I'm still active in certain areas and fortunate enough to have a link with the New York Blood Center as a scientist emeritus with the Lindsay F. Kimball Research Institute. And we have tested a lot of these samples in our lab, so I'd love to share our experience.
0: Perfect. And now Lindsay.
2: Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> My name is Lindsay Rayhorse. I'm the manager of education and training for the IRL and Genomics Labs of New York Blood Center Enterprises, and I'm really happy to be here. Thank you.
0: So perfect. So with that, I think we're going to really jump off. You know, here are our learning objectives. Again, they're threefold, and actually we'll have focused sessions on each one of these. First, to evaluate the impact of anti C D 47 agents on blood compatibility testing. Next, how we can think about implementing laboratory protocols and procedures to facilitate timely transfusion support for our patients on anti-CD47 agents. And lastly, how to use a collaborative care approach to ensure patients receive timely transfusions as part of supportive care. So really my um, goal here will be to first just to give a really brief whirlwind through some of the clinical data it, with anti-CD47, you know, you know, where the excitement is, where potentially some of the expansion can be. And so, with that, first, just a very brief background. CD47 is actually widely expressed on almost all of our cells in our body. It actually performs a number of important physiological functions. And critically, when CD47 binds SERP alpha, SERP alpha is expressed on uh, macrophages, dendritic cells. It essentially provides this don't eat me signal, and specifically does that through recruitment of SHIP12, essentially um, leading to this uh, negative signal. Whereas if you block this, and you can do this with a number of approaches that we will go over, and you can see that here then there is activation of phagocytosis. What's important is that for this pathway to be triggered, you do require pro eat signals, cow being a prototypic one, and so without that, you really do not get on-target toxicity for the majority of cells, red blood cells being a key exception, which, of course, is a major focus of today. And again, just part of normal physiological function to think about is for uh, you know, preserving our normal stem cells. Actually, this is one of our body's uh, systems, again, in order to prevent you know, immune destruction of of, of these critical cell populations. So what about in cancer? So again, there is widespread expression, but relatively for CD47 is relatively at lower levels. But if you look in cancer cell populations, and again, today's focus really more in in AML, both in bulk blast populations as well as leukemia stem cell populations, there's significant increased expression. This actually does correlate with survival if you look at the right. So uh, AML patients with higher CD47 expression actually have uh, inferior overall survival. CD47 may provide a strong Disadvantage advantage to AML LSCs, some of this work is ongoing. So when we think about how to therapeutically exploit uh, this access, uh, most of the work has been w- predominantly with really two strategies. The one today we're focusing is on anti-CD47 monoclonal antibodies, which are these antibodies in blue, again, leading to activation of phagocytosis. Again, this may lead to multiple other advantageous um, uh, you know, processes such as, um, crosstalk through, um, increased antigen presentation, particularly from dendritic cells. And then based on how the structure of the antibody is, is, is made, there can be direct, um, ADCC or CDC possibilities. The main other two, uh, mechanisms that are being exploited both are in clinical trials. The main other one is actually SERP alpha fusion antibodies, which we'll go over a couple, as well as direct anti-SERP alpha monoclonal antibodies, a little bit less clinical data with that one. So moving on, as far as focusing on migrolimab, again, this is the anti-CD47 agent that has been farthest along in clinical development. This is really the first pivotal clinical publication in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, looking at the combination of migrolimab with rituximab and rituximab refractory patient population. You could see responses were seen across patient populations and a really just nice case example uh, with the PET scan. On the right, again, a patient with quite widespread lymphadenopathy and really a remarkable complete response. Uh, 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 for this patient. As far as preclinical data in in AML, a lot of this work has been led by Robbie Magetti and the Stanford Group. Again, with adding an anti-CD47 antibody and urine models, you can see really actually complete aplasia or elimination of these leukemia cells, which you can see on the histograms on the bottom. And actually, you can see the engulfment by macrophages of multiple tumor cells uh, evident by the arrows on the right. Now what we've learned clinically is that single agent anti-CD47 therapy has relatively li- limited activity. And really the key is synergizing agents that can ultimately impact the balance of pro-ethnic signals. And so, calreticulin again being the most prototypic one, there are multiple other ones like phosphatidylserine and some others that are not as well characterized. But again, this balance of pro signal is quite critical. So azacitidine can upregulate this pro eat signal quite robustly. And in an aggressive AML xenograft model, you can see combination of azacitidine-migrolumab led to really complete disease eradication, improved survival versus <coughs> either agent alone. There's also nice further synergy data with triplets, with venetoclax that we'll comment on a little bit later. So this led to a very large phase one expansion study that looked at two patient populations, both higher risk MDS as well as AML patients unfit for intensive chemotherapy. The dosing strategy for the magrolimab is given first at a priming dose of one milligram per kilo. This is um, particularly for safety regarding the transfusion perspective, which we'll talk about in detail in a moment. It's ramped up over the course of two weeks then given at 30 milligrams per kilo, again at this loading dose weekly through the first two cycles. And then on cycle three and beyond, uh, it is changed to every other week. The the backbone chemotherapy in this agent is azacitidine at a seven-day schedule, which is really standard in this patient population. Just to comment briefly, again, this publication is recently in in JCO, uh, in the AML publication, uh, similarly, uh, was recently published just a couple months ago. But if you look at the on-target anemia and the impact on our patients, again, you can get this very large drop, particularly after the first... Two doses, really the first dose being the major one. Although the average drop is 0.7 grams per deciliter, you can see ranges up to 3 grams per deciliter. And there have been patients even who have had 4 or 5 grams. This can occur as early as hours after the setting. But what's important is over time for patients on treatment, and this is associated with hematologic response, patients can achieve transfusion independence. So this is really a first-month issue um, in particular. Some of this, and again, this has been worked out at the Stanford group, is, is this RBC pruning process. So patients, at least on chronic migrolimab uh, therapy or other anti-CD47 agents, may actually lose CD47 on their red blood cell surface. Again, briefly just focused on the clinical trial data. This is from the high-risk MDS phase one um, uh, population. Again, about two-thirds of patients having P53 wild type and a third having uh P53 mutant. Again, we could have potentially some discussion in the question and answer sessions about molecular subsets. But over three-quarters of patients achieved response with a true complete remission rate between thirty and forty percent and durations of remissions that were, were quite impressive. Again, I think there have been some recent setbacks, and again, we'll have discussion later. The phase three enhanced, which was the pivotal MDS study, did um, you know read as negative. These data have not been presented. And again, the big questions is what was the molecular subset potential differences in the phase three versus the phase one. Again, still a lot of enthusiasm in this space, and again, a lot to um, dive down from these very large uh, studies. So again, for mitigation strategies, and I think we'll really get into the meat of this in a moment uh, by my really excellent uh, co-faculty members here, but there's a number of different strategies that companies have under, under, um, taken. One is potentially again the priming strategy that I already uh, mentioned with Magrolimab. Others are potentially to have decreased specific RBC affinity. These are just several examples. Um, additionally, some may have differential, through differential glycosylation binding, for example, endoparlament may also lead to lower RBC affinity. And again, there are other novel platforms to potentially avoid this toxicity. This actually may be one of the issues why at least the high-risk MDS trial um, was a failure. So again, when we think about CD47 therapy, today a lot of the data is looking at, you know, chemotherapy synergy with um, azacitidine. We talked briefly about rituximab, really any um, antibody that can provide a pro could be potentially synergistic with megrolimab therapy, um, potentially adding this with traditional immune checkpoint therapy, again, with this crosstalk and improved antigen presentation. So there's a number of agents that may be synergistic, and again, some of these combinations are just underway. Moving on a little bit to the AML patient population, again, this is the... Um, a doublet of azacitidemogrolumab and AML patients, again, was really in that same trial. Now, this ended up being a, a almost exclusive P53 mutant patient population with some amendment. This is just MDS data that showed that the survival appeared to be double versus historical, and particularly for patients that went to transplant, where we sometimes expect only 20% long-term survival, that we actually had over 60% of patients. Again, small numbers in this subset, but quite encouraging for outcomes to tra- with transplant. Moving on to the triplet, and this was um, an investigator-initiated study by my close collaborator, Navaldava, at the MD Anderson Group. Again, they looked at azacitidine venetoclax migrolimab after running some uh, uh, preclinical uh, synergy data, largely led by marina Konopleva, And again, the true CR rate now is almost up to 50%. Again, most of these patients being P53 mutant. But what we've come to learn in P53 patients is that response rates by themselves are probably not really what is the critical um, endpoint to look at. It's really the survival based on short durations of response. And so they looked at all patients that had been historically treated with this HMA venetoclax, which is the standard of care in this patient population, and innumerable groups have still shown median overall survivals of less than six months. I often state that this disease is worse than, let's say, metastatic pancreatic cancer, and it's really a group of patients that most profoundly needs novel studies to improve outcomes outcomes they then did a comparison analysis versus their triplet therapy and again we still have a long ways to go but median overall survival was you know over 10 months and again this was double versus the uh, at least historical reference with the doublet of HMA venetoclax again this led to two phase 3 trials one was enhanced 2 which was specifically for this p53 group whether or not there's truly some differential advantage with targeting this patient population i think is still an unknown question and, and actually some ongoing research that we and others are part of. Unfortunately, again, this trial also recently was um, closed for futility from an efficacy perspective. The main trial ongoing is now looking at this triplet versus doublet. And again, I think whether or not this trial will proceed to full accrual, we'll learn sometime in the early 2024 setting. Again, this is still really the major hope to move magrolimab, at least in the frontline therapy. Granted, there are multiple other agents in the space. So just very briefly on other agents, ALX148, this is the only data that we have in MDS and small AML patient populations. There is a triplet ongoing, and I expect that we see data at ASH. They have an inert IgG1 leading to really lack of potential anemia, although I think when companies sometimes say they have a lack of anemia, I think the clinical data may be somewhat differential, and we still need to think closely about those groups. This is the, uh, uh was a, tr- a trillium agent that's now owned by Pfizer. But essentially, I think one thing to emphasize is that because there's such broad expression of CD47 and a lot of antigen sync, having 100% saturation is quite critical. And so with at least TTI621's development, they had some issues with thrombocytopenia, which can occur with some CD47 therapies. And they were never really able to fully dose escalate based on their DLT wording. And you could see that their saturation was far under 100%, leading to, unfortunately, really a a lower level of activity with this agent. Now, TTI622, which is an um, IgG4-based agent, is now ongoing both doublet and triplet strategies. And, again, we'll look forward to seeing data with that in the near future. The next two slides are really just other potential combinations. Some of these have not happened, but I still think hold some promise, really, just for your reference. <coughs> and again, lastly, there are many, many agents uh, in the space, again, targeting either CD47 or serp some other trials potentially moving to pivotal strategies in the near future. And so with that, I'd like to uh, switch over to my uh, faculty member, Christine, who will talk about interference with standard serological techniques for blood compatibility testing.
1: Thank you, Dr. Solman. So at this point, we'd like to focus on our first uh, learning objective, which is to evaluate the impact of anti-CD47 agents on blood compatibility testing. But before we do that, there is an opportunity for you in the audience to get involved. We have an audience response question here. You can answer this on the iPad. So the question is, the potential for CD47 therapeutics to interfere with pre-transfusion testing depends on which of the following? ABO type? CD47 dose but not the individual therapeutic? Hematologic condition being treated? Individual CD47 therapeutic and its dose? I'm not sure. Wow, I think you all don't need to be here (laughs) because um, D is actually the correct answer. And through the session, I will or all of us will explain a little bit more as to why that is the correct answer. But first of all, I would like to introduce you to the CD47 molecule real briefly. Um, CD47 is a transmembrane protein in the red cell that is part of a very large complex, which is the RH complex. So it, it is in a very important complex within the red cell. The interesting thing is that the expression of CD47 on red cells varies according to the RH phenotype it appears to be more strongly expressed on D-negative red cells than on D-positive red cells. And its expression, or the strength of expression, depends on um, the CE protein in the red cell, because red cells that lack the CE protein, that's d dash -dash cells, have much weaker expression, and RH null cells have the weakest expression of all because they lack uh, D and CE antigens. So it is on all red cells, the CD47 antigen, and also on other cells. Because it is strongly expressed on all red cells, you're not just dealing with it on the patient's red cells, but it will also be, of course, on reagent panel cells and on donor red cells. And so when a patient is receiving one of these CD47 therapeutics, and I'll use therapeutics as opposed to anti-CD47, because not all therapeutics are actually an anti-CD47. As Dr. Solman mentioned, there are other types or other ways of inhibiting CD47 interaction. But if you have a patient who's received this product, then it is very likely that there will be some interference in pre-transfusion testing. So on here uh, are the CD47 therapeutics that are most likely going to be encountered in the blood bank at the moment. Mogrolimab is on top of the list because it is the one that is widely being used and is likely to appear in your blood bank. But many others are in development and so you may see others. So, Magrolimab is an anti CD47 antibody that is of the IgG4 subclass. And if you see a patient for pre transfusion testing, you'll find that it's challenging because uh, the plasma will show pan reactivity in all phases of reactivity and by all methods, whether it's gel or tube or solid phase. The reaction is going to be quite strong, and in fact, you will observe reaction already in direct testing in in saline, and it will be a solid 4-plus in the indirect antiglobulin test. You should observe stronger reactions with the D-negative or little R-little R cells than with the D-positive. And unlike the monoclonal that we have become to love, CD38 or daratumumab, um, enzymes and dithiothriotol or DTT treatment does not affect this reactivity. And you can see this reactivity as soon as one hour post-transfusion. Now, mogrolimab actually can interfere with ABO typing. Uh, You may get a reverse type that looks different from the front type, as is demonstrated here. You may even see spontaneous agglutination, which means you will not be able to ABO or antigen type with this product. And it does depend very much on the timing of the dose uh, of when that sample is taken and the concentration of the antibody. The interesting thing about patients who are receiving Megrolimab is that, in general, the direct antiglobulin test is negative or weakly positive, and also the order control is negative, which can, of course, lead to confusion and cause you to think that you're dealing with an alloantibody. If you make an eluate from the patient because the patient was recently transfused, even though the DAT was negative, you will find that the eluate is very strongly reactive. And what this shows us is that the anti-CD47 coating the patient's red cells is causing blocking or steric interference with the DAT testing. So, because CD47 is virtually expressed on all cells, it's not surprising that there is some interference in platelet and neutrophil testing the interference of platelet testing depends on the method that's being used and can in general be avoided by using some of the commercial ELISA tests because they don't use actual platelets, they just use the glycophon. Um. Now on this slide, I've listed additional uh, CD47 therapeutics that you might find coming into your blood cell. The amount of interference is different from what I've described from a map. In fact, you have one, rea- uh, one therapeutic that doesn't appear to interfere at all, the TTI621. ALX148, however, um, does cause interference, not in direct testing or antigen typing, so that's a good thing. But in the indirect antiglobulin test, you get very strong reactivity and also positive DATs. Lemzapalimab, the interference is limited. It's an IgG4 antibody again, and it can be on the whole circumnavigated. Um, And also TTI622 has very limited interference in that it only appears to interfere in gel testing. So at this point, I think it's time to turn this over to Lindsay.
2: Okay, thank you so much, Christine. Now we're going to talk about mitigation strategies. So Christine illustrated uh, very well the different serologic interference of these different anti or different CD47 therapeutics, and so we're going to talk about um, how we uh, how we mitigate this reactivity, and this is going to hit on our objective number two, which is implement laboratory protocols and procedures to facilitate timely transfusion support for patients taking anti CD47 agents. So before we begin, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, once again offer an audience response question. Um, and so please participate on your iPads. The question is, which of the following is an effective mitigation strategy for magrolimab interference? Is it A, change the enhancement media? B, change the testing methodologies? C, treat reagent red blood cells? D, use anti-IgG that does not react with IgG-4? Or E, I'm not sure. All right, once again, the correct answer is uh, an overwhelming majority answered correctly. Use anti-IgG that does not react with IgG4. And we'll go into why that's the correct answer in the upcoming slides. All right, so the first thing that I want to go over, and it might seem odd, but I want to go over what doesn't work. And, you know, Christine covered some of this. What I'm offering here is, first of all, we're going to focus on the indirect antiglobulin test because that's usually the phase where we're going to do our ruling out of clinically significant antibodies. And what I'm showing here is different um, columns of serologic reactivity using different methods, using different enhancement media, using different serologic techniques. So I want to point out um, on the columns at the left that tube, gel, and solid phase, you can expect reactivity with Migrolomab. So changing the methodology um, is not a way to mitigate interference. Um, the second thing that I want to point out is if you stick in tube testing, uh, regardless of what enhancement media you use list peg or if you just take away enhancement media and you run a saline iat you're still going to have that really strong uh, interference so changing enhancement media is not going to mitigate the reactivity on the columns at the right you can see different um, cell treatments and uh, christine mentioned this as well cd47 molecule is resistant to all of these different cell treatments that we have in the blood bank, and so um, either testing our rea- or excuse me, treating our reagent cells with a chemical like DTT or enzymes like ficin or papain, um, in some cases. Uh, you might even see enhanced reactivity with these cell treatments. And then finally, I just want to point out that cord red blood cells also express the CD47 molecule strongly, and so we can't do our pre-transfusion testing using cord red blood cells. So now let's focus on what can work, all right? Uh, the first thing that I want to mention is uh, from our audience response question, using an anti-human globulin reagent, that is your anti-IgG reagent that you're using in your blood bank that lacks reactivity with IgG4. Um, if you use a, a total anti-IgG, you're gonna get this pan reactivity that we've described up till now. However, if you choose an anti-human globulin reagent that doesn't react with IgG4, you can obtain either negative or potentially weekly positive results, and that's a really good point. Here is that all of these mitigation strategies, uh, the results are sometimes mixed, and so you know sometimes the mitigation strategy is going to work, and then sometimes it might not. Um, so I just have a, a, some columns of, of reactivity once again on the slide showing that if you run a panel using an AHG that's a total anti-IgG, you're going to get that strong reactivity. And if you run the same panel, just switching your anti-human globulin reagent to one that doesn't react with IgG4, oftentimes you're going to be able to get negative results and rule out your clinically significant antibodies. The second thing that I want to talk about is adsorption, because uh, CD47 is expressed strongly on red cells and platelets, you can use either to absorb out the anti-CD47 and then use your absorbed plasma to do your rule-outs of clinically significant antibodies. Um, it's been shown to... to be a successful mitigation strategy, but might not work at all times. I do want to point out, if you have extra reactivity in the back type and an ABO discrepancy in a non-Group O patient, then adsorption might be your only way to resolve your ABO discrepancy. Um, If your facility uses adsorptions utilizing PEG, um, which in in some cases could potentially increase the efficiency of the adsorption, in patients taking microlimab you definitely cannot perform PEG adsorptions. It's been shown that PEG adsorptions will precipitate out the antibody and that would invalidate the procedure. Uh, The next thing that I just want to mention is that there have been reported studies that say uh, that megrolumab interference, uh, that you don't detect the pan reactivity in automated solid phase. Um, In this particular study, three of 18 samples showed non-specific reactivity, but zero of the 18 samples uh, showed pan-reactivity that we would expect. Um, there are other publications that contradict this, and I know that in our hands at our facilities, when we're using manual solid phase, uh, we can't replicate this. So Christine did a really good job explaining that different CD47 therapeutics are going to have different serologic interference patterns. And so as you might expect, uh, there's going to be different mitigation strategies for each of these. And so this table provides a lot of information, and I just want to point out some of the um, important things here. So for with ALX148, for example, um, five to six absorptions with enzyme-treated red cells have been um, shown to have been shown to work sometimes, uh, but the results are mixed. One thing that's super important is that with a CD47 therapeutic like ALX148, just changing your anti-human globulin reagent is not going to work with that particular CD47 therapeutic. Remember, magrolimab is of the subclass IgG4, whereas ALX148 is a fusion protein um, utilizing the FC portion of an IgG1. And so, uh, you know, just in theory, it makes sense that changing your anti-human globulin reagent is not going to work for that particular therapeutic. Um, In general, what I think you should take away is if you know the CD47 therapeutic and you know that it has um, an IgG4 component or it is an IgG4 uh, antibody, then using the correct anti-human globulin reagent is probably going to be the easiest mitigation strategy. And if not, then you might have to turn to adsorptions.
0: So now, the, now the fun really begins, and I uh, thank you for thank you for those who've already started to uh, put some questions in. We may um, answer some of them actually as we're going, even uh, during some of the waiting times, and we'll definitely have a little bit of time at the end to jump through these. So again, we are now going to go into our first escape room. This is actually the first escape room I've been a part of from a CME activity, and so just a couple of housekeeping items. So first, um, enter your first and last name and the one important key because there's going to be a second escape room is that you should enter the same name. Don't change your name uh, mid route. Um, another one is as once you get to this next step, the keyboard will kind of pop up and it's kind of in the way. So there's a little bottom thing that looks like a keyboard and bottom right. If you tap that, it will then uh, go away. Please read the instructions carefully. The main two differences between escape room one and escape room two to get out is there is a drag and drop uh, versus with the second one, there's a tap and tap. So uh, and at any time, if it, there's issues, there's a lot of uh, uh, workers from the CME Outfitters. Just raise your hand. They'll try to jump and run. Now, the most important part of this is there is a leadership Leadership. There is a leaderboard um, that we will see both after activity one and then cumulative after uh, the escape room two. And there will be an earth-shattering reward for the person who wins. I can't. I can't tell you what that reward is till the end. But um, again, this is an excitement. So please go ahead and get started uh, in escape room one. Still loading. Give it a moment. Still voting? They're working hard in the back. Momentarily. If you look at the top menu bar, uh, for those of you whose pages were not loading, go ahead and click on the Escape Room 1, and uh, that should load in just a moment or two uh, for you. Thank you for your patience. seems like potentially still not working for many. Is that true? Yes. OK. Maybe just in a brief moment, there's a couple questions that have come in just on the first objective. Lindsay or Christine, you want to maybe handle those?
2: Sure. So there was a question that was submitted. Um that it that says when you say that PEG precipitates out antibody and should not be used for adsorptions, do you mean it precipitates anti C D forty seven? And wouldn't that be a good thing? Um and and the the response to that is that It's precipitating out IgG antibody, and I don't know that you can um, clarify if that's just the anti-CD47 therapeutic or if if it couldn't potentially be precipitating out other IgG antibodies as well. And so, you know, you you run a control for a reason, and if the control invalidates the procedure, um, you know, it, it, it shouldn't be used. Do you want to comment further?
1: We've also found when you do the PEG absorptions with these, uh, that the dilution factor is, um, you know, has an impact as well. And so it seems a dicey method to use for this and not recommended.
2: Another another question, um, is the DAT negative or weak in all methods? Um, i believe the answer is, is yes uh d- definitely in tube and and i guess also looking at the auto control we know for sure that the auto control is weaker negative um, and assuming that the dat is the uh has the same kind of reactivity and the third question is can you use warm adsorption for reverse typing and the answer would be yes
1: Okay, so the question was that uh, in some of the results we showed, the auto control, and we're talking about mogolimab, of course, the auto control was negative, and it, the concept is just as with the DAT that there is so much CD47 on the red cell that it is blocking access of the. Um, of the CD47 to the red cell at that point and the same with the DAT. If you have all your sites blocked, there's no room for anything else.
0: okay so i think so it looks like it was successful so hopefully escape room two becomes uh even easier we have tammy Mabus. uh apologize if i'm pronouncing a rate at a score of 76.8 pretty amazing um definitely take screenshots for you know for gold trophies but again we'll see who the ultimate winner is so with that um we're gonna move on to our next and really our learning objective three Um, It takes a team. It's going to be really, all three of us, really led by Christine and Lindsay. And uh, Christine's coming up.
1: Thank you. And for sure, Dr. Solman, in this section, we're going to be calling on you. Um, Somebody needs to answer their phone. (laughs) So... Okay, nothing is moving on the screen, but everything is moving on the monitor now. Here we go. Ah, right, good. Sorry. So this is our last audience response question, which is, for patients on a CD47 therapeutic, multidisciplinary communication is critical to achieve which of the following? Elimination of chimerism in fraternal twins timely and safe transfusions for patients, need to resolve ABO discrepancies, reduce transfusion of blood components, I'm not sure. Again, you're all fantastic. I'd be happy to be a patient in your facility, at least for this. (laughs) Um, Obviously, communication is important for safe, efficient, quick transfusion. And we're going to continue now. I'm just going to share a case with you. It summarizes much of what we've shown you before, but it is an actual case um, of life in the reference lab. And, of course, as always, it's an on-call case, and it's in the middle of the night. And this is a patient who's 71 years old. He's been multiply transfused. He is anemic, and he needs further transfusions. The hospital has done some preliminary testing, but is not able to resolve and find compatible blood. Um, His plasma, they found reacted strongly with everything, and they sent it over. One of the things they also asked for the workup is to do a stat DNA um, extended phenotype on this patient sample, which is a very smart thing to do when you're dealing with something that looks like a mess. The other piece of information that was on the paperwork was that the patient, they think, received monoclonal antibody therapy. Well, okay, so um, what we're thinking is monoclonal, it's got to be CD38. So we know what we're going to see, but actually we don't. Um, So if you can see this panel, it shows very strong reactivity of the patient's plasma in virtually... Uh, in some of the techniques, but not in others. Um, And as you can see, there are different antiglobulin reagents that are being used. And this was not just done for the exercise for this presentation, but we in the reference lab use two different types of antiglobulin reagents in that we will always run a gel test because we found that there are also allo-antibodies, not just monoclonals that are IgG4. And when we're using an antiglobulin reagent that lacks IgG4, IgG4, we want to be sure that we're not missing an alloantibody. antibody But um, the other, ooh, this is the button I was not meant to use. Okay, so additional testing on this uh, sample shows that the ABO type cannot be resolved by direct testing. The direct antiglobulin test is negative. And it certainly doesn't look like CD38 interference, and it doesn't appear to support autoantibody reactivity. And we see very strong immediate spin reactivity. Does that sound familiar? Mm. And we have an ABO discrepancy. The other interesting uh, thing to observe is that there's a difference between tube and gel testing, which is the antiglobulin reagent, and that there is a slight difference in the reactivity between the D-positive and D-negative cells uh, between the top and the bottom of the panel. So there are clues here. And the hospital blood bank is called for more information, and they don't have any other information, which means we just need to continue. We have a hunch, but we need to show that our hunch is correct. So one of the things, of course, that we do with antibody investigation is to test cells that have various red cell treatments. They did nothing except to enhance the reactivity here. So definitely not CD38. Uh, we made an Elliot because the patient was transfused, although the DAT was negative, and we have very strong reactivity. And we did an allo adsorption to remove um, some of the reactivity and we were able to obtain a valid ABO back type. And to do that, four differential adsorptions were done and the plasma reactivity was actually removed. So we call the blood bank and we say, was this patient on CD47? And they still don't have a clue, but they start to investigate further. And it turns out, yes, the patient was on CD47. And we saw follow-up samples with the similar type of reactivity. And some of the samples, which were taken only about an hour after receiving the product, there was um, a spontaneous agglutination. It looked like a cold autoantibody, but you can't remove that reactivity. And that interfered not with the front ABO typing as well. So most of that I've already told you, so we can catch up a little bit of time. Um, but an important thing to remember is that if you make an assumption, like we thought it would be CD38, then look back and see what doesn't fit with your assumptions. You have lots of clues. And this is the type of patient where critical communication is absolutely critical, um, because we need to have this... This definitely, if we had known up front this was a CD47 patient, the approach would have been slightly different. And maybe we could have given the patient blood during the night instead of having to wait until the middle of the next morning for all this testing to be done. Because it is a huge amount of testing to be sure you're not missing anything. The other thing to remember that we've demonstrated through these slides is that not all CD47s are the same. Now if you get information to say the patient is on CD47, well, which particular therapeutic? That is also important to know. And Lindsay is going to take it from here.
2: Okay, thank you, Christine this last objective we're going to talk about the importance of communication up front about uh, patients on these different cd47 therapeutics both that they are on a cd47 therapeutic and of course as christine mentioned which one and so um definitely want to emphasize the importance of communication across multidisciplinary teams right from Uh, who's treating the patient all the way to the lab, to the blood bank, to the the tech who's working on the sample. And we're also going to, in a a few slides, also going to ask Dr. Solman about his experience with this um, effort in communication. So I just want to summarize a few things that I think are takeaway points and really important. Um, When you find out in the lab that you have a sample from a patient on a CD47 therapeutic, the first thing that you need to know is which CD47 therapeutic, right? Has serologic interference been reported? And um, if you don't have information about whether or not serologic interference has been reported, if you can find out if the agent is an IgG4. Um, Sometimes that might even be a Google search, right? Because there are a lot of these different agents, uh, more than what we've mentioned today. I also want to mention that the drug names, and, and you've seen on our charts, can differ, especially um, you know in an earlier phase of the clinical trial. Uh, you know, magrolimab used to be um, referred to as Hu5F9G4, and that's what the, the literature that's published on its serologic interference is under. And so, it, you know, it's just another level of complexity that you have to know these different agents, and that they have different names that they might be referred to as. You need to know also in your laboratory, which anti-human globulin reagents do you use, right? Um, do you have access to an anti-human globulin reagent that doesn't react with IgG4? Um, in some cases, like these uh, patients with migrolimab, it might be helpful to have both a total anti-IgG and a, an anti-IgG that doesn't react with IgG4 so that you can see the whole serologic picture. Um, You should know which mitigation strategies may work for the particular agent. Is it just a a switch of anti-human globulin reagent, or are you going to maybe have to do multiple absorptions? And then also realize that sometimes none of the mitigation strategies work. And then finally, I think a good, um, a good strategy is always going to be to phenotype or genotype these patients. That, of course, informs us what antibodies they could potentially make, And if your mitigation strategies don't work, then um, it provides you the opportunity to transfuse phenotype-matched units. A couple other things that just to consider about transfusion. You have to realize that the ABO discrepancy may not be resolved. And in that case, you would have to transfuse group O units. Um, You might be able, you know, if you don't have adsorption capability in your facility, um, then that can be a problem. But but also with the spontaneous agglutination in the front type, there really is no resolution for that. Um, As far as cross matches, you should have in your facility a plan about what kind of cross matches to do for these patients. If you are able to uh, mitigate the reactivity with the, the appropriate AHG reagent, you could potentially do an IAT cross-match with that pr- appropriate AHG reagent. Um, if the mitigation strategy works and you're able to rule out clinically significant antibodies, then potentially an electronic cross-match could be a strategy. And it's just important to know that depending on the CD47 therapeutic, if it is a... a Something that's going to cause reactivity in the immediate spin phase, then of course immediate spin cross matches are not going to work. Obviously, if your patient has clinically significant antibodies, you're also going to have to provide antigen negative units. And then, really, as a backup, when these mitigation strategies don't work, you should consider transfusing phenotype matched donor units. This is just a flow chart that kind of uh, explains if you're making a policy a laboratory Uh, protocol for handling patient these patients things that you might want to consider and I want to point out that the very first part of this flowchart is effective communication so that should definitely be addressed um, as as one of your primary concerns when you find out that a patient's on a CD 47 therapeutic your first question should be which one if it's magrolimab we've talked about the specific uh, mitigation strategies if it's something else Your next question should be, is this an IgG4 antibody or does it contain a portion of an IgG4 molecule? Um, And that's gonna determine which mitigation strategy you use. As far as transfusions requested for these patients, um, your hospital policy should address what you should do when the reactivity is mitigated, what kind of cross-match you should use and take into account that the ABO discrepancy may not be able to be resolved. And then also you should have a strategy for what you're going to transfuse and what kind of cross-match you're going to use if the reactivity... Is successfully mitigated, and so now I would like to, since communication is so essential, um, I would like to invite Dr. Salman to share his experience with with how his facilities communicate to the laboratories about CD47 therapeutics.
0: Perfect. That was that was really beautiful. Actually, this this treatment algorithm I think is perfect, and and again the communication is a key. I was fortunate, you know, in our blood bank uh, to work with you know Karen Benson. Um, He's actually been at Moffitt for, for, for a very, very long time. And, and so I think in the beginning we, we actually didn't know, you know, some of this and what the challenges may be. You know, fortunately for us, you know, we, we do use reagent, AHG, you know, lacking reactivity. So we actually didn't have as many issues. But in the beginning, every patient, the blood bank was notified before every patient was being enrolled on study so we could learn that real time. I do think the extensive genotyping phenotype is is, is critical because remember these patients are often very very sick and they may get admitted to any local hospital it could be much much smaller um you know, uh, you know, you know, transfusion medicine group there, and they actually will need help from, you know, from you guys. So I think that's potentially one of the biggest things. We also educate our patients, give them sort of a card information, and it's also sort of in the consents so that they could say, hey, if you're admitted and there's challenges, it's sort of this direct, um, direct contact. But I do think, again, there are multiple other agents, and so I think as we get into the space, each agent is important to take a step back. Does it, you know, work perfectly, let's say, with this algorithm, or is there, um, other, you know, important Items that need to be specifically set up for for that. So I want to, in the interest of time, move to escape room two. Again, the amazing award um, is coming, you know, very, very soon. So again, let's move to this escape room. Hopefully there are no challenges this time. And again, while we're going through this, I'll I'll try to moderate a couple of the questions that are popping up. And once again, we'll ask you to click on the button on the top toolbar for Escape Room 2, and uh, you'll be able to fill in your name and uh, play the game momentarily. Cynthia or Christine, a couple couple questions that I think you guys would be the experts to to answer. So one question was, what is the maximum number of absorptions that could be performed?
1: Oh, do you enjoy? Well, I think we should both do this. Um, <laughs> that's a tricky question. Uh, you know, when we've talked about patients with warm auto antibodies, some people feel that. Four is the maximum in case you dilute out the underlying alloantibodies. Some people will say six. Uh, Other places are just going to see what happens, taking into account the fact that you may be diluting out an antibody. Um, So in some ways, it's kind of the same principle with these agents. But I have to say, I get nervous when you're doing... 10 absorptions or something, which is what I think happened with one uh, patient, and that was with uh, ALX. And those are so potent that actually, if you're doing your absorptions, you need to reduce the amount of time that you're incubating the plasma with the absorbing cells so that the antibody that was removed from the plasma doesn't go back uh, onto It doesn't come back off the red cells. I mean, there's this exchange, so they're very difficult. And I think if I'm honest, the answer is I don't know. I think you have to do this with a very cautious approach, but you're likely to be needing at least four absorptions, and it's going to depend on the dose that is currently in the patient's plasma, and it's going to be different at different times of the treatment because these are increasing doses as the patient is... Receiving this product, it's a fairly low dose the first week and then it uh, goes up. So, have I talked long enough to say it? <laughs> I really don't know, but I think in an experienced lab, I would certainly be comfortable with four to six absorptions. Um, I'm dying to ask my colleague, but I think I better not. <laughs>
0: Maybe maybe one more quick question. Is there more than one manufacturer of anti-IgG lacking IgG-4 or not reacting with IgG-4? Um, that I don't
2: know. One of them, for sure.
1: Not that I'm aware of. I'm only aware of the one. And I think that includes um, not just the U.S., but most of the rest of the world.
0: Maybe one more brief one, too. Have missed allo antibodies been reported with monoclonal AHG lacking IgG4?
2: Not that I'm, awa-
0: not that I'm aware of.
2: Uh,
1: depends what you mean by that. We have certainly, at the New York Blood Center, we have seen alloantibodies occasionally, such as antibodies to high prevalence antigens, JMH is a typical example, anti-JMH, also some anti-YTAs. And when we have used the antiglobulin reagent lacking the IgG4, they have not been detected, but they were detected in the gel test. Uh, And in our lab, because of the complexity of the antibodies, we would, that's why we're using two different antiglobulin reagents when we became aware of this. Now, you could argue those haven't been clinically significant. I'm not aware of any that are clinically significant. But there is discussion in the literature that for some this may not be a good thing. And you could read a paper by Jim Zimmering in transfusion, oh gosh, maybe four years ago, that talks about that lack of IgG4.
0: Perfect. We're going to see how people have done in the escape room momentarily. Okay. So in in room two, we have a first place, a Chloe Thompson with a score of 67.03. You know, your award is I would take a picture of the screen and you say I won a virtual gold trophy there were uh, budget cuts, unfortunately, right leading up to here. So, um, so with that, we are going to have some time, uh, just briefly, to run over a couple more questions. I know we're we're limited, so let me see. Oh. Perfect. So just one briefly on the SMART goals. Again, this stands for SMART, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely, just to try to put everything into action. Um, again, develop, update, and or implement a reminder system to alert team members. Again, that careful communication is, is key in order to improve compliance with mitigation protocols. Um, to improve the rate of selection of anti-IgG that does not react with IgG4, to mitigate the interference with testing blood uh, for patients on migrolimab, and to ultimately establish um, you know, regular multidisciplinary team meetings to review updates in CD47 therapeutics and communication strategies, again, to improve the mitigation protocol use. So maybe just in, in uh, two minutes, uh, I think really interesting question. Have patients been tested or have you had any experience on both anti-CD47 and anti cd 30 Eight, or what would you potentially hypothesize challenges in that setting? There is, you know, ongoing efforts in myeloma.
1: I have a feeling that we have seen one of those, yes. And so I suspect if it's mogolimab, the CD47 is going to predominate. You may see a little bit of change in reactivity. I don't know. But my assumption is CD47
0: will be the one that
1: predominates, and so you have a light mess.
0: So perfect. So I think in the interest of time, there are a number of questions, unfortunately, I still couldn't get to. But I please actually welcome people to come up afterwards, really, for uh, you know, for all of us up here. I think we're welcome to answer some afterwards. So with that, again, just like to thank you know CME Outfitters for putting this on. Again, you can visit the virtual education hub for additional free resources and activities, uh, both for healthcare professionals and patients, with the link there at the bottom. Just for a housekeeping item, to receive credit, again, CME or CE credit for this activity, you must complete the post test and the evaluation online, um, and please click on the request. Cr- credits tab to complete this process, um, and ultimately uh, get your certificate. I'm assuming you can get it electronically with that. And again, with that, I'd like to just thank everybody for being here today, again, on updating to protocols and procedures for anti-CD47 agents in clinical laboratories. I know it was a whirlwind, but I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you.